Well, the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis is, as we discussed when we came to chapter 5, if you look back at Genesis chapter 5, it's another one of the, those chapters in the Bible which most people tend to consider to be very dull and difficult. And I do have to admit that it is difficult, if nothing else, in pronouncing the names. But it is a chapter that is indeed full of very strange names, names that we have no um, desire to name our children today, and also places which are very hard to pronounce. So unfortunately, what most people do when they come to a chapter like chapter 10 is sort of read through it, glance through it real quickly, or else skip over it entirely. But in doing so, they miss one of the most unique and interesting chapters of the scripture, believe it or not. This chapter, which I have entitled God's Table of Nations, contains a remarkable historical document which even the Bible's most hostile critics have to admit is of extraordinary importance and reliability as well. They confess it is very reliable. In fact, this is the earliest table of nations which is known to mankind. There is absolutely no record of the origin of the ancient nations of this world, which even is remotely comparable uh, from any other source to what we have here in chapter 10. It is not only incomparable in its age, but also in its comprehensiveness and in its accuracy. Genesis 10 contains an ethnological table. In other words, it contains an historical record of all of the human races or the nations. It tells us where the various nations and people groups of this world originated. It is unlike the genealogies that we find back in chapter 5. Remember when we studied the Sethites in chapter 5? And also it's unlike the genealogy which we will come to in chapter 11. If you look at chapter 11, verses 10 to the end of the chapter... Chapter 10 is not like those genealogical records because in those records we found uh, that fathers were listed along with their ages at the time that they gave birth to their firstborn son. And then also we were given an age at the time that the father died and then, of course, the age when the son had his, his son and the age that he was when he died, etc., etc., But in Genesis 10, we have names, but we have absolutely no birth ages, and we have no death ages. So we have no ages at all in chapter 10. And even some of the names that we have in chapter 10 do not seem to be, and we know that they aren't, actually names of the descending sons. They're names of groups of people. And this is indicated to us in many cases by the I am plural ending on some of these names. Remember, I am like in Elohim, it's a plural ending. And we'll see that, that the I am ending is on a lot of these names, which tells us it's not just a son, it's a group of people, a group of descendants. And also we'll see it in, like in verse 16 where you have reference to the Jebusite. That's referring to the Jebusite people a group of descendants. So with that little introduction, uh, we're going to be looking at God's table of nations. First of all, we'll have an introduction in verse 1. Then we'll look at the descendants of Japheth. They give the the descendants of the firstborn son first. Then we look at the descendants of Ham. 
who was the youngest son. And then last of all, we'll look at the descendants of Shem. Now, why does Shem come last? Most likely it's because this record was originally kept by Shem himself. Remember, Shem is the son of Noah who would carry on the Messianic line. So the record-keeping was turned over from Noah to Shem, and he originally wrote this account that we find. He's the one who kept the records. And so being polite, he put himself last. All right? So let's look, first of all, at our introduction for this lesson, and it it is found in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. In the first verse here, we find that the purpose of this chapter is to record the generations of who? The three sons of Noah. And also to demonstrate how it was from them that the whole earth was overspread. Remember, we read that back in verse 19 of chapter 9, where it says, these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. So that's exactly what we're going to look at now in chapter 10, is how from those three boys, or men, the whole earth was overspread. It's interesting to notice, I thought, that the entire population of the world, as far as you know, mankind is concerned, that it was divided by God into three parts. We have the descendants of Japheth, the descendants of Ham, and the descendants of Shem. So all men and all women originally came from one of those three people. And that's very interesting because once again we find that God seems to be demonstrating his own triune person in his creation. Remember how we saw that repeatedly in our study of Genesis chapter 1? How God over and over again. I mean, it makes a lot of sense because when we looked at the heavens, we saw that there's how many levels of heaven? Three heavens. We look at the earth and there's three parts to the earth, our, the ball that we sit on. There's the outer crust and the inner crust, or the mantle. And then there's the core, three parts. We found out that there's three kinds of animals in the animal kingdom. There are um, the, the air creatures, the land creatures, and the sea creatures. There were also um, three types of vegetation. Can't name those right now, but oh, let's see. There was the grass and herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit. No, the grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit. That's in Genesis 1.11. So everything, and we could, we went on and on. There's three kinds of rocks, and we just went crazy with our threes. Do you remember that? How many different uh, triune things there are in creation to give testimony to the Creator, who himself is a tri, you know, triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet he's one God. Well, man himself is triune, isn't he? Because we are one person, and yet we consist of body, soul, and spirit. So I just thought it was very interesting that all mankind, likewise, has been divided into three groups, we could call them. The sons of Noah, the son, I mean the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And yet all mankind is one, right? Because we all really came from Noah and then back to Adam. And where did Adam come from? He was created by God. So we could say mankind, likewise, is a trinity in unity. 
just like his creator. Okay, let's look at now the descendants of Japheth. And for this, we'll look at verses 2 to 5. Japheth was the father of the people group we could call the Indo-Europeans. All right, verses 2 to 5. The sons of Japheth, Gomer and Magog, and Madai and Javan, and Tubal and Meshach and Tyrus. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz and Ripith, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, let's see, got to see how far I'm supposed to read till verse 5. Okay. And the sons of Javan, Elisha and Tarshish and Kittim and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles. First time you see the word Gentiles in the Bible. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue or language, after their families, in their what? Nations. All right, remember this is the table of nations. Now, assuming that Shem, and in your notes I tell you why we believe that Shem was the author. I won't be going through all that in this lesson. But assuming that Shem was the man who originally compiled these records, and then, you know, they were all collected together and and passed down from generation to generation until they eventually got to Moses, who put them all together under divine inspiration and wrote the book of Genesis. But assuming Shem wrote this record here, it would be appropriate for him to have begun this historical ethnogenealogical record with who? His older brother. And that's exactly what he did. He started with the descendants of Japheth, the firstborn son. Now, seven sons of Japheth are presented for us. In verse 2, and we also find that he had seven grandsons who were listed from just two of his sons, Gomer and Javan. And there would, of course, have been other grandsons from his other five sons, such as Magog and Madai and Tubal and Meshach and Tyrus. Obviously, they also had sons, but they're not included. Their sons are not included in this Table of Nations chapter. And the reason for this is all just a part of the purposeful, selective process of God. For his own purposes, God chose only 14 members of the Japhetic family to be included in this list. And that is all. He has seven sons named and seven grandsons. A total of how many nations? Fourteen nations that come from Japheth which are listed for us by God's own design for his own reason in this uh, chapter. Now, Gomer was the firstborn son of Japheth, and he has become identified with the Sumerians, who were the people who lived to the north of the Black Sea. I don't know if you can see that map or not, but they were up there to the north of the Black Sea, which is right here, okay? And so they came up in this section here. And um, we find that the Sumerian name seems to have have survived to our present-day name Crimea. Some of Gomer's descendants also spread west of the Black Sea, over in this area, and they settled in such ancient areas as Galatia, Bithynia, Phrygia, some of those names you're familiar with from the... Bible, and then into the upper region of the Euphrates River, right in here, some of them, in Armenia, 
These are all the descendants of Gomer, the firstborn son of Japheth. Eventually, yeah, this map is in your um, notes this week. It's on the last page, so you can look at it more carefully, because I know you can't see it probably. But eventually, some of these descendants spread west over this way into Europe and became known as the Gauls of France, you've heard of them, the Celtics of Britain, the Galatia of Spain, the Germans. Mostly when you read Gomer in the Bible, you sort of think of Germans. Um, The Cambria of Wales and the Irish. And we'll talk more about some of Gomer's descendants when we get to his sons. They are listed for us in verse 3. Now, three of Japheth's sons, back to them, three of his sons, Magog, Tubal, and Meshach, we're going to discuss together because in one way or another, they are the ancestor of the Russian people. Now, Magog literally means the people of Gog or the place of Gog, G-O-G. How many of you have heard of that name, Gog, in the Bible? Of course you have. It's in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Also in Ezekiel. It's the son of Japheth who gave rise to the Scythians, who later migrated, well, I don't have my map, but again, north of the Black Sea and later settled into much of modern-day Russia. The future descendants of Magog, future, yet future from even where we are, will have a major role to play in an anti-God alliance with Meshach and Tubal. They will get together in the last days of world history to fight against whom? Israel. Actually, against God, against his people, Israel. And you can read about that in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and also in Revelation. After the millennial kingdom, when Satan is loosed from the bottomless pit, he actually gets uh, Magog to join him in one last rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on to Tubal. Tubal was the father of the people who settled in eastern Asia, um, Asia Minor, around the area of Turkey. And then in time, from Turkey, they moved north and east. And if you go north and east from Turkey, you come again into the area of Russia. It's easy, really, to see and also to hear, if you look at that name, how the modern Russian city of Tobolsk came from this grandson of Noah still carries a similar-sounding name. Tobolsk happens to be located, by the way, on the Tobol River. And in the Tobol Valley, there are at least 10 cities which carry a variation of the name Tobol. So here we are thousands of years later, and we still can see evidence of this grandson of Noah up there in Russia. Meshach begat a people known as the um, Masak, Masaki, Masaki, Masoki, maybe that's the way you pronounce it. Masoki, I like that the best. And the Masoki settled in the area of Turkey and then later migrated again north into the Russian states. And they founded the city of, who can guess? Right, thank you. hope my pronunciation wasn't that bad. They settled the city of Moscow on the Muskva River. And so these are descendants, associate Moscow with Meshach, Tobolsk with Tubal, and Magog with Russia. Okay? Actually, all three of them are Russia. Speak of Russia. Now listen to what the Lord God had to say to these three 
groups of descendants. Through his prophet Ezekiel, he said, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. That's in Ezekiel 38, verses 2 and 3. Now, the term chief prince, if you noticed I said that word twice in there, that term, it actually comes from the word rosh or rush, rush. And that's where we get the name, what? Russia. So definitely Japheth has three sons there who formed the present country of Russia. Now, in putting those three Russian sons together, I skipped over Madai and um, uh, Javan. Madai was the third son born to Japheth, and he gave rise to the people of Media, who over the years spread into the land of Persia. And later, some of them even moved into India. Now, the Magi who came to offer gifts to baby Jesus seem to have been from Media. So they would have been descendants of Madai. And um, that's about all we know from them, except that we can say here we've got Gomer as sort of Europe. We've got Russia from these three sons. And here we have the Medes, okay, who eventually formed the great... Median Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, when they joined with Persia. So we see Japheth, what, spreading out, enlarging, just like it had said over in chapter 9 in the prophecy, chapter 9, verse 27. Javan, we happen to know more about that son than any of the other sons of Japheth because um, he has four of his own sons which are listed. And we'll look at those on the next transparency. The name Javan has been established as being the equivalent of the Greek name Ionia. And it might have even been Yavin. Maybe that's how it was pronounced. And we get the, in the Greeks, Greece used to be called Ionia. Yavin, Ionia, you know, kind of hear this. Do you hear it? <laughs> I hope you do. But both Japheth and his son, Javan, are considered by ethnologists. Now, those are the people who study ethnic groups. You know, ethnologists, they study ethnic group, people groups, where people came from. These two, Japheth and Javan, are considered to be the original progenitors of the Greeks. So, here I am, a descendant of Japheth and Javan, probably. And we'll talk more about Javan when we get to the discussion about his four sons. Well, the last and seventh son, Tyrus may be the ancestor of the Thracians and the Etruscans of Italy. Okay, And eventually they became part of the Roman Empire. So if we look at his seven sons, we've got Europe, we've got Russia, we've got, you know, the Medo-Persian Empire, we've got the Greek Empire, and we've got the Roman Empire, all coming from this eldest son of Noah. So he was the father of the Indo-Europeans. And we haven't gotten into the Indo part of it, except a little bit, but also they went over into part of India, where India is today in that area. All right, let's move on and talk now about the sons of Gomer. And Gomer, remember, was the firstborn son of Japheth. So Gomer is Noah's grandson. Before we talk about 
the three listed sons of Gomer, which are Ashkenaz, Ripeth, and Togarma, I do want to point out that in the latter days, you know, the end times, Ezekiel again tells us that the people of Gomer will join up with their forces, the forces of Gog and Meshech and Tubal. So we've got Germany or an area of Europe joining together with Russia. Also, we are told in Ezekiel that they will join forces with Persia. What is Persia called in modern times? Iran. Join up with Iran and Ethiopia and Libya to fight against the nation of Israel. So we've got this um, alliance of all these countries, and their names go all the way back to the sons and grandsons of Noah, that they will fight against God's people Israel in the last days. But they will be defeated, not by Israel. They will be defeated by whom? God himself will defeat them. Well, the first son, Ashkenaz, most Bible commentators agree that the descendants of Ashkenaz were those who settled in the north uh, of Palestine, above the Fertile Crescent. We find that this son's name has actually been preserved in a lake there, which is called Lake Ascanias. And some of the descendants of Ascanaz may have been uh, or have become the Trojans. You've heard of the Trojan horse? They may have been the Trojans because the prince of the Trojans was called Asenius. Some of the descendants of Ashkenaz later migrated to the area of Germany. In fact, now there is some overlapping. You know, some of these descendants we'll see go to some of the same areas. But um, to this very day, Jewish people who come from Germany or Europe are referred to as, who knows, Ashkenazi Jews. That's what they actually call them, Ashkenazis. And there are some ethnologists who believe that also Scandia and Saxon, those two names, are preservatives of the name Ashkenaz. So they may have even worked their way as far as the Scandinavian countries. Repath, who was the second son of Gomer, we know the least about him. Uh, very likely his descendants became the ancient Paphagonians. I've never had heard of them before, Paphagonians. Um, now this is interesting. Some think that the descendants of Ripeth eventually spread out to the farthest areas of Europe. And it is very possible that the Carpathians are the descendants of this son, Ripeth. Carpathians. How many of you have been reading or have read <laughs> the Left Behind cities, uh, series? Nikolai Carpathia. Now, where did Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins get that name? I found out this week, comes, goes all the way to a uh, son of Gomer. Gomer was a grandson of Noah. That was very interesting to find out that there were these Carpathians. And it said in the latter days, you know, Gomer joins up with Russia to fight against Israel. So interesting. Also, it is suggested that the very name of Europe itself is a derivative of the name Ripeth. That's where they get the title Europe. Now, Gomer's third son, Togarma, is generally identified with the Armenians and the Turks. And uh, 
Even the Armenian traditions make this claim. They say that they are descendants of Togarma. From the name Togarma comes the name Turkey and Turkestan. So affiliate him with Armenians and Turks. Also, the army of Togarma, the army of Turkey, is going to join forces with the armies of Gog to descend in battle against Israel in the last days. Okay, let's move on now and look at the sons of Javan. He's the third son of Japheth. There are four sons in this group. We've got Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. Now, the Elisha descendants were maritime peoples. They were by the water of Grecian stock. And they produced a very fine blue and purple sort of a fabric. And I wondered if that's why the Greek people, people to this day so much love blue and purple. I mean, it's just, if you know anything about Greeks, they just go overboard with the blue and purple. And even their flag is white and blue, a real beautiful Mediterranean blue. The Greeks themselves, did you know this? That if you went to Greece, they don't call their country Greece. They call their country, and it's on their stamps and everything, Elas. does not start with an H like we write it, H-E-L-L-A-S. You've heard of Hellenization. You've heard of the Hellenists. All right, but they don't say Hellenists. They go Elas, you know, Eliniki. I'm a Greek, you know. So it's with an E, and it comes from the name Elisha here. Even the Iliad, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad. In the Iliad, it makes reference to the Elishan people, the Greek people. So Elisha was the Greeks. Then Tarshish is generally associated with the southwest coast of Spain. Often Tarshish is associated with Tartessos in Spain and also with Carthage in North Africa. Tarshish, how many of you remember what that was known for in the Bible? Who tried to flee? Right. Jonah was going to flee to Tarshish so that he would escape God's will in going to, God wanted him to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites, but he, tried, he got on a boat that was headed for Tarshish, the total opposite direction. Well, the problem with associating Tarshish with either Tartessos of Spain or Carthage of North Africa is that both of those were Phoenician cities. And the Phoenicians were the descendants of Canaan. Here we have a descendant of Japheth, not Ham and Canaan. But this could again be a case of overlapping, you know, geographical overlapping. So... To be dogmatic about the descendants of Tarshish is very difficult. Actually, it still remains somewhat of a mystery, but most people do affiliate it, affiliate it with Spain. Now, the last two names which are listed under the son Javan have noticed the plural I-M ending, which means, you know, that, that they were groups of people from that descended from Javan rather than that they were individual names of his sons. Now, it, it probably is that the Kittims came from a son named Kit, right? And the Dodanims probably came from a son named Dodo. I mean, <laughs> Doda. <laughs> 
Dodonym, by the way, is also written as Rodonym in the um, genealogy that we have in First Chronicles 1-7. There's a repeat of this genealogical record that we're looking at over in First Chronicles chapter 1, and over there it's spelled Rodanim. Now, they say that this is very likely identified, he's identified with um, Cyprus, also the shores of Italy and Greece, and even some of the mainland of Greece. The name, the term Ma-Kidim, M-A-Kidim, actually means the land of Kidim, Ma-Kidim. And this is where they have gotten the name Macedonia. I know it doesn't sound exactly like it, but that's where the name Macedonia comes from. The Dodonim, or the Rodanim, were the people who eventually settled in the Mediterranean island of Rhodos, or Rhodes. Okay? Now, we'll go on to, well, before we get to the next one, let's look at verse 5, because there we have, for the very first time, the term Gentiles mentioned. And it was, now remember, who wrote this? Who compiled the book of Genesis? Moses. So by the time of Moses, there were Jews, the Hebrews, and there were Gentiles, right? So here we have the first time that the word Gentiles is applied, and it's applied in specific to the descendants of Japheth, right? Most of us in this room are probably descendants of Japheth, and we are Gentiles. Well, the fact that this verse states that these people were divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue or his own language, and after their families in their nations, because it tells us that, it tells us, in effect, that chapter 10 here was actually written after the dispersion which took place in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel or Babel. And especially is this known because it tells us that these nations and these family groups were divided by their languages. Did you know when God divinely gave those different languages to destroy the rebellion against him that he gave the languages in family groups? He wasn't so callous as to give one language to a mother and a different language to the children and the father, different languages. The family groups all had the same language could understand one another, and that's why, you know, they would drift off. They could understand each other and drifted off and formed their own nation. Okay, let's look now at the descendants of Ham. And for this, I'm going to read verses 6 to 7. I'm going to, I guess I'll read verses 8 to 12, but we're not going to discuss those verses today. That's a parenthetical break to tell us about an evil man named Nimrod, Lord willing, We'll talk about him next week, and then I'll go ahead and read all the way to verse 20, because that's where we finish up our list on the descendants of Ham. So start with me at verse 6. It says, And the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Rehama, and Sabtaka. And the sons of Rehama, Sheba, and Dedan. Now, here's the parenthetical break. We will not talk about this today, but next week. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. 
and the beginning of his kingdom, first time we have the word kingdom in the Bible, and it was a bad kingdom, was Babel, or Babel, and Erech, and Achad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Calah, and Resen between Nineveh and Calah, the same is a great city. Now we pick up again with the descendants of Ham. And Mizraim begat, begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lahabim, and Naphtahim, and Pathrusim, and Kaslahim, out of whom came Philistim, and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboim, and even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Well, Ham was the youngest son, remember, of Noah. Noah had um, three sons. He was the youngest. And there are four branches, or four sons, or descendants of Ham, which are given to us. Cush, I don't know if you can see this, but Cush was the firstborn. And uh, he definitely is affiliated with Ethiopia in the Bible. And Mizraim, the second son, apparently was the father, quote-unquote, of the nation of Egypt. Then the plural name that we find in that name, Mizraim, perhaps signifies to us, because it is plural, that these people, probably the sons of, or the descendants of Mizra, they apparently spread along the whole length of the Nile River, settled into both upper and lower Egypt. And that's maybe why we have Mizraim, you know, plural, the peoples that settled in both lower and upper Egypt. But if you see that name, just affiliate it with Egypt. Kem, K-E-M, was the original name of Egypt. Did you know that? K-E-M, the original name. And that may have been a reference to Ham, And that may suggest to us that Ham went with his son, Mizraim, into Egypt and, you know, lived there with his descendants. Well, put put the next son, and he is affiliated with Libya in the Bible. And that's an area which is west of Egypt. So we're finding that the descendants of Ham settled where? Africa at least this branch, in Africa. Canaan, who was the fourth son of Ham and the one upon whom the curse of God was placed back in Genesis 9.25, he, of course, was the ancestor of the Canaanite people, the very wicked people who bore the land that bore his name. They occupied the land that bore his name. And the land of Canaan actually for a while was a province of Egypt. Now five sons, we go back to Cush, the firstborn son, five sons of Cush are listed for us in verse 7. And all of them, all five of these sons in one way or another are affiliated with Arabia. 
Seba migrated from southwest Arabia to settle in the area which is now called the Sudan. So the Sudan, those people are descendants of Seba, who was a descendant of Cush, who was a descendant of Ham. At some point in history, we know that Cush's family split up and one group moved into Africa and the others from Africa went eastward into Arabia. Now, Havilah, that was his, uh, Cush's second son. Do you remember the land of gold that we were told about back in Genesis 2, 11? Back before the fall, there was a land of gold, which was called Havilah. And apparently that made a big impression on Noah because he passed that down. I mean, not Noah, but Adam. And he passed it down and it went from generation to generation. We find the name Havilah cropping up twice in the chapter we're looking at, chapter 10 of Genesis. So, that you know, it made a big impression that this was a land of gold because they called some of their own sons for it. And then Sabbath, Ramah, and Sabdaka seem to all have eventually settled into the Arabian area. We know here that the sons of Ramah, the fourth son had two, two sons listed, Sheba and Dedan. We know that uh, both of those names are affiliated with Arabia, You know, you remember the queen of Sheba from Arabia who went to see King Solomon to determine if he was really as wealthy as everybody said. And it's interesting that these two names here, Sheba and Dedan, that they were actually also, they must have been well known because Abraham had two grandsons through his second wife, Keturah. Remember after Sarah died? He married another younger woman, terrible Abraham, and her name was Keturah. Well, two of his grandsons through Keturah were also named Sheba and Dedan. Okay, then in verses 8 to 12, I told you we'd skip over that for now, but in those verses we find the most notorious name in the line of Ham's descendants. Cush had yet another son, and his name was Nimrod. And although Cush and his other sons, all of these other sons here, moved south and west into both Africa and Arabia, Nimrod decided to settle in the fertile area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Verses 8 to 12 form here an obvious parenthetical break from our regular, you know, record, our regular genealogical, ethnological record, we have a break here to tell us about the rise of the first founder of the first world empire. I told you it's the first time the word kingdom is used in the Bible, and it's in reference to the kingdom that Nimrod built. He was not only the first world dictator or tyrant, but he is also a picture in type of the coming who? Antichrist. He's a type of the Antichrist of the last days. <clears throat> because Nimrod was the probable leader of the organized rebellion against God's purposes for mankind, which we are going to find out about in the next chapter when we look at the Tower of Babel, um, he was the leader of that rebellion. Because of that, I'm going to wait to talk about him in our next lesson so that we can put him and Babel together in one lesson or two, or however long it will take us. 
Okay, so that's all about Cush and his descendants. Now let's go over to Mizraim. He, I already told you, was the founder of Egypt. And the seven names, you have to go down here to find the seven names of his sons. Most of them carry, or they, let's see, no, they all do. They all carry that plural I am Hebrew ending. So these are most likely then all groups of people which descended from Mizraim. And um, <clears throat> some of these people, such as the Ludim and the Anamim and the Lehabim and the Naphtahim, they cannot be positively identified, although best research indicates that most of them were tribes near or in Egypt. All right? And some of them may then have moved both south and west into other sections of Africa, but originally Egypt, and then they would start to move and, and fill out a lot of Africa. The Pathrusim peoples, and we move on to this one, the, the fifth son here, they lived in Upper Egypt in Pathros. In, in verse 14, if you look at it, Moses actually puts a little parenthesis there to tell us that the Philistim, and who are they, do you think? The Philistines. He tells us that the Philistines, who were very well known in later Bible history as the bitter enemies of Israel, he tells us that they came from Kasluhim. And, but according to Amos... And also, according to Jeremiah, the Philistines arose from the Egyptian strain of the Kaphtorim. Now, that's the next name listed here under the sons of Mizraim. So these last two sons of Mizraim, who were grandsons of Ham, the Kashluhim and the Kaphtorim, were both, according to the Bible, according to Moses and Amos and Jeremiah, they were both the ancestors of the Philistines. Now let's go to the sons of Canaan, because there are no sons listed for poor old uh, Put there. He's all by himself, and of course we know he had sons and daughters, but none of them. God's, this is God's selective. He's doing this on purpose. He didn't list them here. So we move on to Canaan, and he has many descendants listed here. The Canaanites, of course, settled in Canaan, which later became known as Palestine, or Israel. And they were, we talked about this a little bit last week, they were a very immoral, very immoral. I mean, even sacrificing their babies to their false gods and in, engaging in all kinds of perverted sex, they were very immoral and very ungodly. And Canaan, remember, was the one upon whom the curse of God was prophesied by his father or his grandfather Noah. Canaan, we find, was very, very prolific because he had 11 sons. It's always bad when the bad guys have so many children. <laughs> but here we have a bad guy who had a lot of children. Now, the first two actually seem, I don't know why they're, oh, here he is, Sidon and Heth. Those actually seem to be the names of the sons. But then after that, we have uh, groups. Uh, Jebusites probably come from a son named Jebu, all right? But they're all groups of people after the first two. Sidon, who was Canaan's firstborn, if you look at verse 15, that's where we read about Sidon. He was the founder of the oldest Canaanite city, which was named after him, named Sidon. Sidon, if you remember, together with Tyre, you've heard of 
Tyre and Sidon. Those were ancient commercial and maritime centers. They were both on the water, right there on the uh, Mediterranean Sea. They were commercial areas for the Phoenician people. So Sidon, we could say, I didn't have room to write that in, but Sidon was the father of the Phoenicians. And you've heard of them. I know you have. Well, Heth, H-E-T-H, was the second son of Canaan, and he was the ancestor of the the Hittites. And you've heard of them, haven't you? The Hittites, from whom Abraham bought a burial place for his wife Sarah. When she died, he bought a burial place in Hebron called um, Machpelah, I think was the name of it, where he buried Sarah. He bought that land from the Hittites who were descendants of Heth, who was a descendant of Canaan, who was a descendant of Ham, who was a descendant of Noah. Well, their nation, they had a great empire. The the Hittite empire was very great, but when it finally fell, there are indications, now this is interesting, that a remnant of the Hittites fled eastward to China. In ancient cuneiform monuments, the Hittites are called Kite. K-H-I-T-T-A-E, from which comes the name Cathay, which is an ancient European name for China. That's what the Europeans used to call China, was Cathay, C-A-T-H-A-Y. And there are many, many similarities between the Mongols, the Oriental people, and the Hittite people. Both peoples, for example, wore those long um, pigtails, they called them, the long pigtails. You know, one pigtail in the back, both the Hittites and the Mongols wore those. And also both peoples wore shoes where the toes turned up and curled around. You know what I'm talking about. And both of them were pioneers in the breeding and training of horses and also in the art of smelting and casting iron. So... We find now that the, the, the Hamites, the Canaanites, even moved eventually into uh, China and became a lot of our Oriental people today. The Jebusites, verse 16, are probably the descendants of a son, as I said, who was named Jebu, and they were the people who settled in the area of Jerusalem. Joshua 15:63 you write read about the Jebusites in Jerusalem. They were the citizens that lived there when David, King David actually came and conquered the city. He conquered it from the Jebusites. Then we have the Amorites and they are one of the most famous of all the Canaanite tribes. And they of course inhabited the land of Israel when Israel was arriving after having spent all those years in Egypt. The Amorites eventually increased so much and they spread over so much of the land that their name actually became synonymous with Canaanites. So a lot of times we'll read about the Amorites, you're really reading, or the Amorites, they're really speaking of all the Canaanites. So they used Amor, because there were so many of them, they used that name synonymously with the Canaanite name. 
Next, we have the Girgashites. The Girgashites are mentioned quite a bit in the Bible, the Old Testament, but very little is really known about them, and their location of settlement has not really been determined where they landed, where they settled. However, they were included in the list of nations whose territory was promised by God to Abraham. So wherever they were, God promised their place to Abraham. Then we have the Hivites. They're also mentioned a whole lot in the scripture, and their name actually means villagers. Hivite means villagers. And archaeologists have identified Hivite cities extending all the way from Sidon in the north all the way down to Jerusalem in the south. And they, so they, have, they really were villagers. They settled a whole lot of little cities all the way from the north down to Jerusalem in the south. Shechem, you've heard of the city of Shechem, and Gibeon and Mount Hermon, they were all places where the Hivites settled and lived. Then we have the Kites, and you read about them in verse 17. They must have been named after Noah's Ark. The Archites. <laughs> That's a joke. Now, they may have been centered. I have to throw in some humor because it seems like to me it's probably so dry. I found it interesting. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But the Archites apparently settled in an area around Tel Arca, which is in Syria. So think of Archites in Syria. Then we have the Arvidites. And they were settlers of an island uh, city of Arvd. Arvad, which was a Phoenician city off the coast of Palestine and about 100 miles north of Beirut, Lebanon. So when you think of these Canaanites, you know, we've got here now a bunch of Arabs, or um, not Arabs, I should say Syrian Arabs. And then we've got the Zemurites, who probably settled in a city called Sumer, S-U-M-U-R, and it's still known today as Sumar, Sumra, excuse me. It's in the same vicinity as the Phoenician cities that I've already mentioned. So again, we've got some Phoenicians here. And then it seems that the Sinites, who came from the eighth son of Canaan, can you imagine if they came from a man named Sin? Wouldn't that be an awful name? The Sinites had, um, they must have had, been well known because there's a lot of connection with their name in the Bible. For example, we have the wilderness of Sin. We have Mount Sinai. We've got the Sinim. And this would suggest that their influence was rather prominent, even though really very little is known about them. We know that the the son, if his name was Sin, which it must have been, His name was used, he must have been prominent, because his name was used by the Assyrians to name one of their gods. They actually had a god named Sin. (laughs) Terrible. And this is where the very famous Assyrian king named King Sennacherib, that's where his name comes from, because Sennacherib actually literally means, quote, may the god Sin prosper the brothers. That's what King Sennacherib's name meant. Now, Isaiah 49, 12 makes reference to a people in the Far East. Okay, now we're back over in the Far East, you know, the area of China. Isaiah makes reference to those people as being called Sinim. S-I-N-I-M, you know, plural. Again, plural, a group of people from Sin. 
So this fact, along with the fact that references to Oriental peoples being called Sine in ancient secular accounts points to the possibility that some of the descendants of Sin, the Sinites, moved eastward, while some remained in Canaan. Now it's interesting to note that the Chinese are often, or are, often, no, not often, they are, period, identified by the pre- prefix S-I-N-O, which is actually Sino, except in English we pronounce it Sino. For example, you have Sinology. You know what Sinology is? It's the study of Chinese history. And you have, for example, the Sino-Japanese War, which was the war between China and Japan. And one of the dynasties of China was actually the Tsin Dynasty. It's spelled T-S-I-N. The Manchu emperors used the word Tsin as a title. That was their title for the emperor. And it's believed also that the word was used by the Malays in the form China, T-C-H-I-N-A. But when the Portuguese came to China and they took that name back with them to Portugal, they changed it to China. (laughs) So it was a long way of telling you that the Sinites are affiliated with China. Okay, now let's look at the descendants of Shem. And for this, we'll read verses 21 to 31. Also, by the way, we are told there that the border, excuse me, the border of the Canaanites, where it went from Sidon all the way, you know, Gerar and Gaza, down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember I told you Sodom and Gomorrah were Canaanite cities. So in verse 19, we have the borders of where these people live. And then in verse 20, we're told, just as we were with the sons of Japheth over in verse 5, we're told that the sons of Ham were divided by their family groups and their language groups into their countries and nations. Okay? So we know again that this was after the Tower of Babel. All right, now let's look at the descendants of Shem. Look at verses 21 to 31. Unto Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born. The children of Shem, now here they are, Elam and Asher and Arphaxad and Lud and Aram. And the children of Aram, Uz and Hull, and Gether and Mash. And Arphaxad begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begat Almodad, and Sheleph, and Hazarmeh. Nope, Hazarmeveth, and Jerah, and Hadoram and Uzzel, and uh, Susan, that's where you came from, <laughs> Uzzel, and Dikla. I thought about that as I was reading it, and Obel, and, well, see, you're a Shemite, that's good, you know, that was the right line, <laughs> and Obel, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, see, there's that name Havilah again, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling was from Mesha, as thou goest into Sephar, a mount of the east. 
These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Shem's line here is listed last because uh, he probably wrote it, as we said before. He kept this record, and therefore he very politely, isn't that the polite thing to do, to put yourself last? (laughs) So he put himself last. Also, of course, he was the one who was going to carry on the Messianic line, and what is the whole rest of the Bible about? The Messianic line and the coming of the Christ. So it makes sense for him now to be listed last, because then it's a smoother transition from his descendants right on in to Abraham and the rest of the Bible. So it makes sense that he's mentioned last here. Noah's prophecy to Shem over in verse 26 had in effect said that it would be through Shem and through his descendants that God was to be blessed because Shem's descendants were to let the world know about him, the one and true true, uh, living God and his promised redeemer so that people would worship and bless him. So it was through Shem's descendants that God himself would be blessed. Well, in verse 21, Shem identifies himself as both the father of all the children of Eber and as the brother of Japheth the elder. You notice that? He refers to himself by both of those names. By the time Moses wrote Genesis, the children of Eber were known as the Hebrew people. You see, it is from this name, Eber, that we get the term Hebrew. That's where it's derived. Abraham was a Hebrew because he was from the line of Eber. You see, it was from Shem that the Messianic line was passed on to Eber. That was the son through which the Messiah would come. So that's where we get the name Hebrew. And it's interesting also that Shem identifies himself with his older brother, Japheth, but what does he not say? He doesn't make any identification of himself with his younger brother, Ham. He just says his elder brother, Japheth. And by the way, that's one of the ways we know that um, Japheth was the oldest there, and then Shem, and then Ham. All right, the ancient Shemites, or Semites, that's where we get the word Semite, you know, anti-Semitism, anti-Shemitism, you know, it's against Shem and his descendants, which is funny because his descendants were not only Jews, but also Arabs. But as far as we can tell, they did not travel much beyond the Middle East. Shem was the progenitor of the Hebrews and the Arabs and the Syrians. So again, you know, there is some overlapping because we saw Syrians coming also from the line of Ham. Now the firstborn of Shem was Elam, who settled to the east of Mesopotamia. That's the land between the Tigris and Euphrates River. This was the mountainous area just east of Babylonia. The Elamites came from Elam, first son of Shem. They later united with Media to form the mighty Persian Empire. 
And they first appear in the days of Abraham. They were the people who joined together with some other forces to invade Canaan and conquer the Canaanite cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, so these are Shemites against Canaanites. And what happened when they invaded Sodom? They captured Abraham's nephew. They made one big mistake. They took his nephew. See, Lot had no business being a Shemite, but living in a Canaanite city. So the the Shemites went over and they took all those people captive. Well, Lot was one of them and his family. And that angered Abraham. So what did he have to do? With just a small handful of his servants and family, he went and he, he got back. He defeated them in order to, to free Lot. You can read about that in Genesis 14. Well, Asher, all right, that was the first son. Now we move to the second son of Shem. Asher was the father of the Assyrians who settled to the north of the Mesopotamia region. That's the upper Tigris River. And then in verses 8 to 12, which I skipped over, the scripture tells us that Nimrod invaded the land of Asher. Nimrod is from Ham, okay? He's from Cush, the son of Ham. He's a Canaanite, I mean a Hamite. He, uh, he invades Asher, who is a Shemite, and that's where he built the city of Nineveh which became the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And as a consequence of that invasion by Nimrod, the Syrian people were a mixed race. They, they were both Shemites and Hamites. You get that? The Assyrians were mixed, all right? Now, nothing is really known about Shem's third son, Arphaxad, or even his son, uh, Selah. We don't know very much at all about them except that they were the father and the grandfather of Eber. So Eber was really the um, great-grandson of Shem. And Eber is the man from whom we get the term Hebrew. Right. Now Lud, next one down here, was the father of the Lydians, Aram. I'm going to skip some things here. Aram was the um, father of the Armenians and the Syrians. And it was from the Armenians that we got the great Aramaic language, which uh, was the main language back in the um, early days. Well, actually, it was a common language spoken by the Jews at the time of Christ. And that's why Christ himself knew what language? Aramaic. Not only Hebrew and Greek, but Aramaic as well. And uh, large sections of uh, the book of Ezra, and there's a section in Daniel, which were actually originally written in the Aramaic language. Those are descendants of Aram. They're Aramaeans and the Syrians. Okay, then we get to the sons of Eber. Let's, uh, there's two interesting factors about the two sons of Eber, Peleg and Joktan. And one is that Peleg, it actually tells us in the days of Peleg that the earth was divided. The interesting thing about Joktan is that he, actually, he has listed, it takes five verses to list his children, at least just his sons. He was very prolific. He had 13 sons. And I'm not going to get into all of their names, but essentially, Joktan's sons, all of these were Arabic people. 
The interesting thing about Peleg, and you'll have to read this in your notes, but his name actually means division, and it tells us that during his days there was a division in the earth, a split or a division. And that could refer, and probably, and I know it does refer, to what happened at the Tower of Babel when the peoples of the earth were divided according to their languages and they went off into their various nations. It could also speak of a literal geological split, and those that go along with the continental drift theory think that maybe hand-in-hand with the um, divine intervention of God at the Tower of Babel, that at, at the same time there was some kind of a tectonic, you know, leftover from the flood. There was some kind of a tectonic uh, great earthquake or something, movement in the earth. You can read about it in your notes. That actually split the one land mass of the earth into the seven continents that we have today. And that they eventually, you know, at first they sort of rapidly started to divide, which would make sense if you've got nations and then in, in language groups and they start to divide as they're all standing on their little... <laughs> but it was a sort of a rapid split, but then it slowed down into almost an imperceptible uh, drifting that we still have today. But So it could be a, a reference to just the Tower of Babel If the continental drift theory is true, it could also be a reference to that. But at any rate, during the days of Peleg, there was a division. And it is interesting because Eber, his father, named him Division. And Eber is a great-grandson of Noah through Shem. At the same time, Nimrod was a great-grandson of Noah through Ham. So Eber and Nimrod were living at the same time. Nimrod built the Tower of Babel. Eber named his son Division. So you see, I'm sure that's what happened when it says there was a division at the time of Peleg. Okay, the Joktonites were all Arabs. Let me just finish here in the summary. Verse 31, we are um, told... If you, you probably didn't count, but while we were talking about all these various names that are given to us, we found that there were 14 nation groups or national groups that are listed in Japheth's, you might want to make a, a little note of that, verses um, 2 to 5, 14 national groups from Japheth's ethnological record in this chapter. <clears throat> now remember, God was very selective He didn't give us all the grandsons. He only picked some of the sons to tell us about their their son, their grands, their their children, which would have been Noah's grandsons or Japheth's grandsons. He's very, very selective in who he went on to tell us about. Why, we don't know, except that this was God's reasoning and he did it purposely. So he listed fourteen nation groups under Japheth, and then thirty ethnic groups are given to us in Ham's record. And that was all the way from verse 6 to verse 20. 30. And then when we just finished up with Shem, we find out that there are 26 national groups. Now an interesting thing happens when we add 14 names and nations from Japheth, 30 from Ham, and 26 from Shem. We find out that there were 70 original families or nations 
given to us in God's table of the nations. And these were, and that's a very interesting number, isn't it? There were seven continents, and there still are seven continents, and there were 70 original nations. And these were all given to us, of course, by God's own divine reason, because we know there were many other descendants, but he, he just wanted 70. Now, this is interesting because it's the same number of the Israelites who left Canaan in order to enter into Egypt. You know, when the famine came, Joseph was already over there in Egypt, and he had become second to Pharaoh. But when his brothers and his father were starving to death, and they left Egypt to go and join Joseph to get the bread of life from Joseph, there were 70 of them. Now, then, of course, when they had greatly multiplied in Egypt and then were returning as a nation back to the promised land under the leadership of Moses, here's what he said to them. Now listen to this carefully. He said, quote, Remember the days of old when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of Adam, when was that? When did he separate the sons of Adam? At the Tower of Babel. It says, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. That's Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 and 8. So Moses' words tell us that God purposely set the bounds on the number of nations so that they would correspond with the number of the children of Israel. When Israel first started out and went into Egypt, she numbered 70. And ever since, 70 has been a number specifically associated with the nation of Israel. We have, for example, the great 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, the most amazing prophecy in all the Word of God. If you've never studied it, get our two-tape mini-cassette album. It's a fantastic prophecy. In that prophecy, God decreed that his program for Israel, Israel, not the church, his program for Israel would be completed in a period of 70 weeks of years. So Israel's entire history can be demonstrated to consist of an amazing framework of successive cycles of 70 weeks of years. In Numbers 11, we discover that Israel was led by a group of 70 elders. We also find that the Jewish Sanhedrin, the religious group that led the nation of Israel during the time of Christ, that the Sanhedrin consisted of how many religious rulers? Scribes and Pharisees? Seventy. Seventy religious rulers. And there were 70 scholars who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, which is known as the Septuagint. Also, the Babylonian captivity of Israel lasted... For how many years? Seventy years. I could go on and on. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in what year? Seventy A.D. On and on it goes. 
this might be interesting. I'll just throw this out for you. But there were 70 scholars, Bible scholars, who got together to translate the Bible into English and, and give us the King James Version. And th- that was also interesting. 70 scholars got together to give us our King James Version of the Bible. Well, I got to thinking, and now please, please... Don't misunderstand me, all right? But I just couldn't help. I have to share this with you, and you take it for what it's worth because I am not one to set dates because no man knows the day or the hour of the time of the rapture. But I got to thinking with all these 70s affiliated with Israel that it might be very interesting um, when we get to the year 2011. Now, the reason I say that is because In 2018, Israel will have been reborn as a nation for 70 years. She was born, reborn as a nation in 1948. And in 2018, she will be 70 years old. And I thought, wow, that's kind of neat. And then I got to thinking, well, if that was actually the time of the Lord's second coming at her 70th birthday, that would mean... We'd be raptured out of here seven years before that, and that would be 2011. Now, the, that's exciting, but the more, the more exciting thing to me is that he could even come today because his return is imminent. The, there's a lot of spiritual lessons that we can learn from this study of the Table of Nations, but I guess the most important one is that we are all one, no matter If we're red, yellow, black, or white, we all came from the same beginning. And therefore, you know, as God is no respecter of persons, neither should we be a respecter of persons. You know, we're all in this together, aren't we? And it's just we're one big family with Jesus Christ alone being our way to eternity. And that's that's really important. I am so glad that we can trust this book. I mean, even the skeptics admit that that is the most incredible table of nations that there is in existence. And they cannot scoff it. They just are amazed at how reliable it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We just need to regard it even more highly because it is so, so deep and so true. And we can, we can know that if we can trust something like this table of nations, then we can trust and believe when you tell us how to get to heaven, which is through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the patience of your people. I know this has been a, a difficult lesson. Thank you for their interest in knowing all these truths that you have to reveal to us because we know that all scripture is given by inspiration and it is profitable and it is for our own learning. And uh, there is nothing that we could study in this book that would be a waste of our time. Lord, we love you and we thank you again for sending your son to die for us. We pray in his name. Amen.